You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Well, good afternoon. Um, I've been asked to talk about superficial radiation therapy in dermatology and its new renaissance over the past couple of years. These are my disclosures, and we will be discussing some off-label uses. We'll start off with a brief history of radiation therapy in dermatology. Radiation therapy was first born in about 1890, give or take, and about nine years later, the first treatment of a basal cell carcinoma was undertaken in Sweden. Within five years, There was already a paper out on radiotherapy and skin disease coming out of France. And then over the next, oh, I don't know, maybe 20 years, dermatologists in Europe and in the United States began using radiation therapy for a variety of skin diseases, including skin malignancies. And then in 1921, George Miller McKee uh, published a large treatise on x-rays and radium in the treatment of the disease of the skin and some of the diseases are listed there. Then for the next 30 years was, quote, the golden age of radiation therapy in dermatology, where most dermatologists had been trained in their residency and then actively used radiation in their offices. In fact, in 1974, a quite comprehensive American Academy of Dermatology survey on ionizing radiation in dermatology revealed that over half of uh, dermatology offices had radiation therapy equipment. And about half of the dermatologists in the United States actually used x-ray equipment in their practices on a regular basis. And about 60% felt that the radiation training within their residency was good or adequate. That was the best it ever got. Then in the 1970s, something happened. Uh, Dermatologists slowly stopped using superficial radiation therapy and training in their residencies declined. Why? Well, one, the equipment could not be replaced. There was no new equipment. In fact, I was trained at uh, New York University and we did have a radiation uh, machine. (laughs) It kept falling apart. It was held together with aluminum foil they told me that it was safe, but I also had a full head of hair back then, so I'm not so sure. And then the teachers that knew how to use radiation therapy, they retired. So there was no one to teach and there was no machines to teach on. And unfortunately, at the same time, not unfortunately, but at the same time, there was an increase in interest among dermatologists to do surgery, and specifically most surgery, and the radiation oncologists took the opportunity to take over radiation therapy for skin from the dermatologist. And that's unfortunate because there is a dramatic increase in non-melanoma skin cancer and there's a need for radiation therapy to be retained within the dermatology domain. There are comorbidities, anticoagulation in the aging populations that could use superficial radiation therapy, larger tumors, also tumors in difficult areas like the tibia or on the scalp, could be a good site for the using radiation therapy. As you'll see later in the second half of this talk, there's a high cure rate and relatively low morbidity of using radiation, superficial radiation, 
uh, in dermatology for non-melanoma skin cancer. And it's just important for dermatologists to retain access to all modalities, both on a political as well as on a financial basis. So what is X-ray radiation? It's kind of a little magical, you know, and we've all heard about X-rays, you know, but we all feel pretty comfortable about, with the electromagnetic spectrum. We know there's uh, infrared, and then there's visible light and ultraviolet, ultraviolet light, and I think we feel pretty comfortable with that. And it just turns out that X-rays are just the neighbor to the right of ultraviolet light. So it's not all that magical. There it is, x-rays. Now, why would one even consider using x-ray therapy? Well, it turns out that x-rays can impinge on DNA and RNA, both in the bridging zone of the two backbones at the nucleoside level, but also at the backbone itself, causing breaks. That's direct radiation toxicity. There's also indirect radiation toxicity. That's where the x-rays donate their energy not directly to the molecules within the DNA, but to water. And then the water molecule gets energized, breaks up, and these high-energy sub-water particles then interact with the DNA and the RNA, and they can also cause these breaks. The bottom line is, what do you got at the end? You have DNA or RNA that has either single or multiple breaks in the strand or in the cross-linking. I think we all know that if you have skin and you irradiate that skin after it has undergone a surgical procedure, that wound healing is delayed. And there are all kinds of reasons why that's true, uh, but the bottom line is that radiation induces inactive cell proliferation, greater apoptosis, which is natural programmed cell death, so the fibroblasts that are trying to cause the wound to heal are not proliferating, and there's cell cycle arrest as well. Now this is all bad for wound healing. It slows wound healing. But there may be certain situations where we can actually use this activity of radiation to our benefit. And that may be with post-excision radiation for the treatment of keloid recurrences. That is, you've cut out a keloid, you've done a good job, but it comes back. Maybe radiation with its ability to delay normal healthy wound healing could be used to try to delay or abort the development of recurrences after you've cut out a keloid. Well, how often does it really occur? And this is the problem. On the left-hand side, there was a keloid, we excised it, we sutured it up, thought we did a pretty nice job. A year later, the bad news, it comes back. The worst news, very often it comes back larger than it was originally. Now, how often does that really happen? Now, I'm certain this never happens in your practice, but if you look at the literature, it turns out that recurrences of keloids after you've excised them occurs about 71% of the time. Now, the different areas of the body, but overall, 71% recurrence rate. So that's a significant problem. Can you use radiation with its slowing of wound healing maybe to block this recurrence? Well, this was an older study. 
retrospe retrospective study of 60 keloidectomy patients. Uh, these were ear keloids, not just ear lobe, but also anywhere along the ear. And then the excision site, the keloid's long gone, you cut it out. But the excision site then is exposed to radiation over a couple of days. And here's an example of a baseline, two patients. Those lesions were not treated with radiation. Those are excised and cut out. But then the sites were radiated, and there's three years later after the surgical excision. What is the five-year relapse rate? About 80% relapse-free. The converse is about 20% recurrence rate. Better than that 70% we just saw. Not a home run, but there's a suggestion at least in this study, that maybe radiation could be helpful to reduce these recurrences. And because the radiation in these studies were fractionated over time, rather than giving all the energy at the same time, there were no pigmentary alterations or telangiectasias. What's new? What's this renaissance? Well, there is a new machine that is called the SRT100, and it's FDA-approved for the treatment of non-melanoma skin cancer, and it's FDA-approved for the treatment of keloid excision sites to try to reduce recurrences. So it's FDA-approved for that. It's a uh, low-energy photon X-rays uh, source, and it has a choice of either 50 or 70 or 100 kilovolts. Uh, and within the machine itself, it's highly calibrated and accurate and controlled. Uh, I think all of us can feel very comfortable using this type of machine, and the unit stops automatically when you hit the amount of radiation you've decided was appropriate. Let me just introduce you with one other term involved in radiation therapy. It's called a bed, a biologic effective dose. And for Blocking the recurrence of keloids, we use a biologic effective dose, a bed of 30 gray. And that could be achieved different ways, either with a blast of 13 gray of energy one time or eight, twice. But we tend to use three fractions of six gray, relatively low energy, three days in a row. And we try to use it the next day after the surgery. So in the this study, they said within two days, we try to start within 24 hours. So here's an example, a small keloid. We excised it, sutured it up, and then we exposed the earlobe to the radiation on post-operative day one, two, and three, and then removed the sutures. Let me say that this machine can be placed in your offices. Um, there's sheetrock that's available that actually has lead in the sheetrock and uh, th that protects everybody from any uh, extraneous uh, radiation. So it's something in your office that can be achieved. Now, there are some large keloids. The port from the machine can be larger, as much as 18 centimeters, 180 millimeter long incision site. So on a Friday afternoon, a patient walks into your office with these lesions and says, uh, can you help me and treat me? Well, 
you know, injecting interlesional catalog is not going to do much for those, right? And unfortunately, you're kind of forced to say the only thing that will help get rid of these is excision. That's the good news. The bad news is there's going to be a very high likelihood that's going to come back. In this case, this was Michael Gold, his patient. They excised it. They sutured it up. On the lower left-hand side was right after the surgery, right after the radiation therapy, three days in a row. And that's it. Two months later, it's now been about eight months. And I think cosmetically, that's doing pretty well. I'd like to have a little longer follow-up. So what's our experience with radiation therapy using this BED-30, 666, three days in a row after the excision? We've now have almost 300 patients, 297 patients, not patients, sorry, 297 keloidectomy sites. Some were two in the same patient of minority. And the follow-up is as long as three years, and the majority was at least six months. Now, truthfully, I'd like the, all these patients to go at least a year. But we are seeing patients as much as three years so far, the recurrence rate was 9 out of 300, or about a 3% recurrence rate. I'd like to go longer, because this is almost too good to believe. Again, remembering historically, it's about a 70% recurrence rate. The main downside, transient hyperpigmentation was the most frequent adverse event. None of the patients were concerned about that. And this was another smaller study of only uh, 44 keloids, but I just wanted to show you cosmetically what it can look like. There is that baseline. That's after the suture, getting the radiation therapy. And at six months and at 12 months, I think the cosmesis is pretty good. And so far, it's 15 months, and there's no evidence of recurrence in this patient, or actually in all, in all 44 studies. Well, what other radiation is out there that you may want to use other than superficial radiation? My ultimate answer is I think we should stick with superficial radiation, but there is uh, a thing called brachytherapy. This is the classic brachytherapy that I'm going to be talking about. This is true isotopic brachytherapy. That's where an isotope is used and then placed directly on the skin or near the skin, and the radiation is emitted from the radioactive isotope. That's true brachytherapy. So, What's better, surgery alone, wait a year, surgery with external radiation therapy, wait a year, or excision, and then on the right-hand side, you can see the brachiotherapy where the isotope is actually placed right over the suture line, and then wait a year. Well, it turns out that if you just excised in this study, the recurrence rate at nine months, not even a year, was 54% on its way to that 70% in the literature. 19% if they got radiation after the excision and about 20% after the true brachiotherapy. But it turned out that if the lesion was going to recur ultimately, the radiation therapy had the longest lag time compared to brachiotherapy. It took longer for the lesion to ultimately come back. And very importantly in this study, there's no evidence of any malignancy because there's a concern. I mean, how crazy are you? 
you're not even treating the keloid. You're not even treating a lesion. And a keloid is a benign lesion. But you're not even treating it. That's long gone. That's in the bottle because you excised it. What you're treating is normal skin with radiation that can make breaks in DNA and RNA. Maybe you're going to be inducing malignancies. Well, in this study, there was no evidence. And I'll show you some more data about the lack of malignancies. Uh, then there's another whole type of brachiotherapy. Not this true isotopic one, but basically superficial brachiotherapy is superficial radiation therapy. And I'll show you a little later actual diagrams of how it's made up. But it's, it's basically the same thing as superficial radiation therapy. This is a very small study, 36 scars using this superficial brachiotherapy and getting about a 9%, 10% recurrence rate, doing well, but a very small study. How about electron beam? Let me suggest that that's probably not the best type of radiation to try to treat post-keloidectomy sites because there was a 44% recurrence rate and also much more symptoms, so I would not go there. Let's go back to that uh, concern about malignancy. I went through the literature and found the only credible, in my mind, association of radiation therapy, post-keloidectomy, and malignancy in this one study, but you had to go back to 1963 to find this case of a 23-year-old woman who had three keloids on her thigh. Now, already I'm a little concerned. You can have keloids anywhere. But the thigh is not a very common site for spontaneous keloids. They irradiated the sites, and then three and a half years later, it turned out they were able to biopsy it, and it was a fibrosarcoma. And although it is possible that the keloidal tissue actually degenerated into the malignant tissue, but the authors were very quick to say that they didn't really think that's what happened because it takes usually 20 years for that type of malignant degeneration to occur. This took only three years, and probably this young woman had a fibrosarcoma from the beginning. Looking at the literature for malignancy following radiation for keloid treatment, these were the five um, four, keloid, four types of malignancies that developed. Uh, the fibrosarcoma that I discussed, which I believe theoretically feels the most comfortable as a possibility, even though the authors felt that it wasn't. And then there was just a patient that could develop a basal cell, a patient that had thyroid carcinoma, and a patient that had breast carcinoma. My feeling is most of those three are probably unrelated to the radiation uh, and also the authors of this review said it was very unclear what type of dosing was used and also whether there was good shielding in the case of these two. And the bottom line, the authors felt and concluded that radiation therapy was indeed a quite acceptable treatment for keloids. In the second half of the presentation, I just want to talk about superficial radiation therapy which you know all about now, but for non-melanoma skin cancer. There are three basic types of radiation, which I kind of alluded to already. Uh, there's electron beam, then there's this isotopic 
brachiotherapy, and then there's superficial radiation therapy. A subset is this electronic brachiotherapy rather than isotopic brachiotherapy. Let's talk about electron beam therapy very briefly. These are actual beams of particles. The other x-rays, remember, were in the electromagnetic spectrum. It's light. It's a form of light. These are actual uh, particles that are accelerated using a LINAC, a linear accelerator. Uh, radiation oncologists are the only ones authorized to use electron beam therapy. Unfortunately, in dermatology, it's a little less helpful because, it, because it's a beam rather than a light beam, but a beam of particles, there's a penumbra around the edge of the treated area where you're underdosing. So there's a chance of recurrences of skin tumors at the margins because unless you bump up the total energy, you may have suboptimal energy along the perimeter because of this six millimeter penumbra. Most common side effects are alopecia and hyperpigmentation. Also, well, how good is electron beam for the treatment of non-melanoma skin cancer? Um, really, um, compared to what's out there, really not as good as I would have hoped for. Electron beam, if there are small basal cells, a 92% cure rate, but once it's greater than one centimeter, we're talking about a 70 or 80% cure rate. Surgery, Mohs surgery, other therapies, other forms of radiation are much better than electron beam. And for squamous cell carcinoma, the cure rates are even worse across the whole board, no matter what size the original squamous cell carcinoma, you're in the range of a 70 to 75% cure rate, not a uh, something that you would use as an initial form of therapy in your armamentarium. How about compare, well, let's talk about this brachiotherapy and electronic brachiotherapy one more time, quickly. Brachiotherapy just means short distance treatment. Originally, iridium was the isotope that was used for interstitial and contact brachiotherapy. And for skin cancers, the radiation, the isotope was actually placed right on top of the skin. Then a couple of years ago, two companies came along with the idea of using an electronic superficial radiation therapy source without the isotope, and then having a very short distance from this source to the tumor. Why did they do this? They wanted to be able to treat breast cancers intraoperatively in the OR, and they didn't want to have radi uh, radioactive isotopes in the OR. Based on this electronic brachiotherapy, um, dermatologists started considering using it for skin cancer, but it requires the services of a radiation oncologist. And initially, the, uh, one of the uh, incentives, unfortunately, was that the reimbursement for the codes for brachiotherapy for the intraoperative breast cancer were very remunerative. Those uh, reimbursements were in the range of $20,000 to treat a cancer. Oh, someone just woke up when I said $20,000. <laughs>
And for a short period of time, dermatologists, in the conjunction with a radiation oncologist, would use this electronic brachiotherapy, no isotopes, um, and treat a small little basal cell and charge $20,000. That is no longer, it was never really uh, an appropriate thing to do, and now it's not even possible to do any longer. This is a picture from 1950 of superficial radiation therapy machine. This is this electronic brachiotherapy. It's virtually the identical thing as superficial radiation therapy, but it has caught the name brachiotherapy, but it's not the real classic form. And there's this disposable, consumable source, electronic source, for this brachiotherapy. So if you do use this electronic brachiotherapy, there is a cost for the consumable, disposable source. How good is superficial electronic brachiotherapy for non-melanoma skin cancer? There's 1,800 uh, basal cells and squamous cell carcinomas, relatively small, uh, less than one centimeter, the majority of them. 97% uh, of them were less than two centimeters, so small little can smaller cancers who got three to eight fractions of electronic brachiotherapy. 82% had radiation dermatitis and itching in about a quarter at one month. They followed up for a relatively short period of time. 63% of the patients were followed up for less than a year and a relatively you know, smaller number of patients. But the good news so far, the recurrence rate is low, 1%. How does that compare to superficial radiation therapy, the classic form? It's, again, low-energy radiation. It's x-rays. It only penetrates maybe one, two millimeters deep into the skin, depending how much energy you use. It avoids uh, damage to deeper structures in the skin. The penumbra is less than one millimeter. So wherever you aim it, you're getting the true dose that you need to get rid of the skin cancer. There are no consumables. Uh, it's a variable dose uh, source, at 50 or 75 or 100 kilovolts. The brachiotherapy is only one uh, source. Uh, you can have multiple applicators for different sizes of the tumors, and it's office-based in your dermatologist's office. And there's no need for radiation oncologists, or radiation physicists, and there's excellent curates in cosmesis. So let's look at SRT compared to electronic brachiotherapy, longer-term data. It could be used by dermatologists compared to electronic brachiotherapy where you need radiation oncologists. There are three different energies, non-consumables. Okay, does it work? Superficial radiation therapy. This is a 40-year review of the literature. 5,000 patients with basal cell carcinoma with various energies and fractionations, the average five-year cure rate, not that one-year cure rate that we just talked about, was 91%, a 91% five-year cure rate. This is for basal cell and squamous cell carcinomas, about uh, 1,300 lesions. 95% for basal cell five-year cure rate, 90% for squamous cell carcinoma. 
side effects, hypopigmentation in this study in the majority of patients, some telangiectasia, some erythema. If you notice, the fractionation is only like nine to 10 fractions. With greater number of fractions, those side effects decrease. How about comparing superficial radiation therapy to electron beam therapy? We already talked about electron beam. On the left-hand side is the size of the original tumor, less than one centimeter, and then increasing to greater than five centimeters. If you look at basal cell carcinomas for superficial radiation therapy, 90% or above, almost in some cases 97 or 100% cure rates. Electron beam, 70, 80% when they get larger. Squamous cell carcinoma, again, SRT, superficial radiation therapy, 90 to 100% cure rates. Electron beam in the range of 70 to 75%. So let me just finish up with my experience and our experience in our office. Uh, we did put in one of these machines in June of 2012. We have now treated clearly over 450 basal cells and squamous cells, which is maybe 10% of all our skin cancer. So it's not our main thrust. Surgery is our main thrust for treating skin cancer. but. There's a subset of patients, especially in South Florida, uh, who may be a little elderly uh, with comorbidities, uh, lesions on the scalp. I don't like doing surgery on the pretibial region of an 85-year-old, if I could avoid it because of healing problems. We extend the fractionation to 15 fractions three times a week. So far, since 2012, no recurrences to date, and good to excellent cosmesis. We do simulation, and the actual treatment is based on uh, figuring out lead molds in order to protect the surrounding areas based on the size of the lesion. And it's important, and I won't go into it unless later, one-on-one, -on -one, I'm happy to speak to people. Um, the simulation is part of the reimbursement as well, that you have to figure out how you're going to go about treating the lesions. Um, if it's in the area of the nose, you, you, you have to protect the inside of the nose as well. It sounds complicated. It's not. You use a f lead fish lure. Then the lead fish lure, you put it in the nose and it blocks the mucosa from getting affected. And I'll just finish up with a couple of pictures. This was a squamous cell carcinoma on the tip of the nose after the radiation, that, um, and then a year later, cosmesis is pretty good. Multiple basal cell carcinomas. If you had to do surgery, it would have to be a pretty big surgery or <clears throat> multiple surgical procedures. The whole area was treated. Got a pretty brisk reaction because he probably has a little uh, field cancerization. I'm sure there are little foci of small amounts of basal cell throughout that field, <clears throat> but then a year later doing quite well. This was on the scalp, an extensive basal cell. I think a surgical procedure is possible, but you know it's going to bleed, uh, and closure could be a challenge for a lesion that size. But you see with the radiation cured, and the cosmesis is quite reasonable, quite good. Here are some other examples. 
after six fractions of radiation for a basal cell on the scalp, and then at six weeks after, cosmetically doing well, on the ear of a squamous cell carcinoma, six weeks after, on the right-hand side, doing quite well, a large squamous cell carcinoma on the temple at the end of treatment, getting a pretty brisk reaction, but then cosmetically doing quite well at the end. And then on the lower left leg, a squamous cell carcinoma, <clears throat> if we look onto the right side, the cosmesis is fine, no evidence of any ulceration or erosion. And similarly here, a year after the radiation, cosmetically doing quite well on the left anterior tibial area after treatment of a squamous cell carcinoma. There are some complications with temporary erythema in virtually all the patients, but it usually only lasts about a week or two. Um, the intensity of that erythema is proportional to the amount of energy, the dose that you used. Hyperpigmentation was the most common side effect, but most common in slightly darker skin patients. Radiation dermatologists in our hand was, I won't say rare, but just occasionally seen and relatively easily treated just with silicon gels. And here's an example of the one case of radiation dermatitis. And then just after two days of putting silicon gel, it's drying up and healing. So I want to thank you very much for your kind attention. Uh, there are two contraindications if there's a pacemaker or a defibrillator, but it has to be within the area of the radiation, not just that they happen to have one. It has to be in the area of the radiation. And this is a relative contraindication, but one that I feel pretty strongly about. If the patient has already had radiation to that site, I probably would not go back a second time and treat that area. Again, thank you very much for your attention, and have a great time in Seattle. <clears throat> How long do you wait to treat the lesion after the biopsy, and why that length of time? Um, in the case of keloids, we already talked about it. If you excise, it's within 24 hours. Uh, usually, we treat the, um, after we get the results of the biopsy, we don't wait more than about a week or so, just waiting for the initial healing to occur. But you get the results of the biopsy, usually it takes, let's say, about a week. So by the time you've actually organized the patient to come back and have the radiation, it's usually about a week or two. So it's more uh, pragmatic than scientific. Can you treat thick or hyperkeratotic skin cancers? Yeah, I think you saw that squamous cell carcinoma towards the end. That was quite thick and hyperkeratotic. Uh, you need to measure the thickness, and that's part of the calculations of how much energy you need to use. And I guess if it's quite thick, then you may want to consider using, instead of 50, to go up to the 75 or the 100 kilovolt voltage. Would you recommend the SRT for a hypertrophic? Again, I think we may have addressed that already. Again, we're not talking about hypertrophic scars because that's not what I'm saying. We excise the scar and then we treat the normal skin. In the case of a hypertrophic uh, squamous cell carcinoma, yes, it is something that is FDA approved. How much radiation is the staff provider exposed to when treating the patient radiation dermatitis? In theory, virtually zero. 
all our staff do wear little radiation badges that on a uh, periodic uh, test to see how much dosing they got. So far in our practice, they've always been negative. Uh, the radiation machine is in a little alcove that's protected, and the um, uh, staff person is behind that and completely protected. Uh, the previous questions were with regard to electronic brachiotherapy. Previous which way? <laughs> uh, are you still using a micromod post-excision for keloids? If so, any study results comparing the low? Okay. Um, someone knows that I used to use uh, micromod after excision in order to reduce recurrences. It turns out a micromod induces interferon locally in high concentrations. Interferon is a naturally occurring anti-fibrotic agent by normalizing the keloidal fibroblasts that are hyperproliferative and making too much extracellular matrix components like collagen, fibronectin, glycosaminoglycan, interferon normalizes those fibroblasts. So the theory would be after you excise a keloid to normalize any residual precursor cells and therefore you wouldn't get a recurrence. And the answer was uh, if you used 5% of micromod cream every night, starting the next night after the surgery, uh, for two months, the recurrence rate was reduced uh, to the range of about 15%, 10 or 15%, all right? Um, there's a recent paper that we were involved in where rather than excising the keloid, they just shaved the keloid flat and then used the amicomod. And what was remarkable about that study is they followed the patients for five years. And there, the recurrence rate after, I try to get the numbers correct, after one year was about 15% uh, recurrence rates and at five years, it just increased another 5%, about 20%. So yes, that is an option, but so far that is five to seven times higher than what we're seeing with superficial radiation therapy. Uh, electron beam for CTCL. I was trained with electron beam as a treatment for CTCL. Um, the problem is CTCL that you're going to consider using electron beam, if it's relatively extensive, the patients are going to get uh, anhydria. They're not going to be able to sweat. They're going to lose all their hair. Uh, now there are newer systemic therapies for CTCL, and I think I would probably go to those systemic therapies prior to using the superficial, uh, uh, the um, electron beam. Do patients experience discomfort during the superficial radiation therapy? No. Uh, there may be a little discomfort because they have to stay still, uh, but it's relatively short exposure times, and they do have the uh, bandages holding the lead protectants in place. So it's maybe a little uncomfortable, but not discomfort in any way, no. Uh, eruptive KA, oh, here we go. 
treated with brachiotherapy in our office for two squamous cells on the leg. Shortly after treatment, they developed eruptive KAs. KAs status post brachiotherapy. Now, I assume this is the electronic brachiotherapy because it was in your office. It wasn't the isotopic iridium. And the answer is, I don't know that. Um, if there was an induction of eruptive KAs after the radiation therapy. There are some papers a long time ago suggesting that radiation therapy in a subset of squamous cell carcinomas may actually activate the squamous cell carcinoma cells to be a more active lesion. That hasn't really been borne out generally. But there, are, there is a paper, not specifically eruptive KAs, but there was a paper a long time ago suggesting that a very small subset of squamous cell carcinomas could get worse after radiation. Any other questions? Radiation therapy for capsular sarcoma. Not in our office, we haven't. Uh, truthfully, we've seen a reduction in capsular sarcoma over the years. How do you go about treating non-melanoma skin cancer on the lower legs with SRT to avoid issues of non-healing wounds? What I would recommend is an excellent paper and I'm going to, uh, by Bill Roth, R-O-T-H. Uh, it is somewhat controversial about using radiation therapy on the lower extremities, but he has made it into an art form of how to choose the right patients and how you choose the right dosing in order to avoid the development of ulcerations. So Bill Roth, William Roth, uh, I would recommend looking at that paper because that's the guidelines we would use. So again, thank you very much for sticking with me so late in the afternoon. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.